Mark chapter 1, starting a new series today, a new term, a new season, a new series. And we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel on the occasions when I preach. And today that means looking at the very beginning, which is uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read through in just a moment to around verse uh, 13. And the scripture references, all being well, will come up on the, uh, on the screen as well. Okay, here we go. Let's read together. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And Jesus was coming, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So we're going to meet Mark, Mark's gospel. Although, as we'll see, it's not really Mark's at all. At least he doesn't own it. It's not about him. It's about someone else, as we'll see. And... First of all, we need to meet Mark. Mark is a man in a hurry. He is a Christian disciple, not one of the closest group of 12, um, but an early disciple of Jesus. It, would, it is thought by many that he had a, a close connection at one time at least with, with Peter, who was uh, in the 12, even one of the closest th- uh, three of Jesus' disciples during his earthly ministry, and Peter in particular has shared with Mark uh, the events, the activities, his observations of Jesus, perhaps his preaching, his messages. Uh, Mark has um, got hold of that, and he's now writing down uh, the accounts of the gospel. And he wastes no time in getting down to business. It's like he's he's putting his cards on the table with a An introduction which is a single sentence. Uh, He wants to cut right to the chase and declare something. It's the beginning of the gospel. In other words, it's the beginning of the good news. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. Um, The beginning of glad tidings. This is a joyful event. Something massive has taken place which is for the benefit of the whole world and Mark uh, wants to tell us about it. When that news began, when the, at this time that he's talking of, 
God's people were a once great nation, a small province that is part of a much larger empire, perhaps in some ways increasingly less significant on the world stage. Many people in that nation practicing a faith which is kind of tolerated, um, but forgotten, perhaps irrelevant. There's a people with an identity crisis longing for good news, longing for happy days. They can look back to their golden age and remember times of great importance and great victory and great significance. Um, but now they, like I say, they've been part of other empires, maybe briefly enjoying their own independence uh, for a while, but things haven't been great for a long time. Now, Mark is then using a phrase that he's borrowed from the, the ruling empire of the time. They were occupied by Rome. And gospel to us sounds like a religious phrase. It sounds like a Christian word. But originally it was a Roman one when an announcement was made of great news. And that announcement might be along the lines of great news. We have won a victory. The Roman Empire has succeeded again on the battlefield. Or great news. Our emperor has risen to the throne. He is a, our emperor has ascended. Or even great news, our emperor who has died has now been taken and has become a god. Great news. That's what it was, uh, that's what was meant by gospel, if you like, uh, in those days of the Roman Empire. Uh, but now it's used for a whole different purpose. Maybe for us, we are a people who are yearning for good news, where globally, picture looks actually quite bleak. Uh, the situation described in any number of uh, newspapers or on the television most of the time is bleak, whether it's Ukraine and Russia, uh, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iraq, whether it's something else, then often there's just a really bleak scenario that we're looking at. Chaos, really. Maybe that's the case globally. Uh, perhaps for some, you would experience that at the moment personally. Personally, the picture is bleak. Personally, there is chaos. Or personally, you're wondering, where is peace going to come from? We, I just can't see how this is going to improve. I can't see how this is going to turn around into anything positive or good. I can look back to maybe a happier time, but I can't anticipate that now. I can't see how that's going to come about now for a long time. So that was the situation for them there. It could be the situation for us here. Eager, desperate even, for a new beginning. A nation with an identity crisis. That could sound familiar. There could be many people in this time just kind of thinking, who, who am I? Where do I belong? Where do I fit? What is this life for? Others perhaps thinking, well, who is Jesus? Actually, why should I follow him? That's what my family do. That's what I've kind of been doing for some time. But now it's just a time of, of asking questions and I'm not sure of the answers. Who is Jesus? Why should I follow him? What difference does he actually make in life? What is his kingdom like? And so I don't know if those questions resonate for you. 
But what I do know is what Mark is saying us here, is telling us here. Jesus is the good news, whatever our situation. It's not a Roman Caesar or Emperor Nero. This good news is all about a person. It's all about Jesus, who is the Christ, God's chosen one, Israel's Messiah. He has begun to reign and is bringing about a new beginning for the benefit of all people. It's not good news, Rome has won another victory, hurrah. It's good news, God has come. God has brought about, is bringing about a new beginning. What does that mean? That Jesus kind of joins my bleak story and makes everything all right. In an instant, a magic wand gets waved. And everything that was before us, or everything that was before me or you, that was just gloomy and awful and hopeless, does it suddenly, all circumstances, does it all get sorted in a moment? Well, not necessarily. Why do I say that? Mark was probably writing, possibly writing, to new believers, Christians, in Rome, at the time, who had begun to follow Jesus, and now were experiencing the the negative implications because they were saying, no, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, and so I'm not going to bow down to Caesar. I'm not going to worship the Caesar. And from time to time, that would mean Christians getting thrown to the lions, um, becoming kind of humiliated kind of sports for, for others. And so perhaps those questions were, were, were being raised again in people's minds. So it's not saying that there's a magic wand that makes everything okay. It's not a case that, that um, Jesus comes into my story, though Jesus is full of compassion for whatever is going on in our lives and whatever is going on on a global scale, the good news is this. We get to join his story. Our story, our life brought into his story, his life, his kingdom, which Mark then goes on to explore for the rest of this book. And uh, I've been reading another book uh, recently, finished it a while ago, got given it and uh, kind of stuck it on the shelf for a while. Um, and then just read it over the summer, The Insanity of God, a true story of faith resurrected by a guy called Nick Ripkin, who's a Christian who is sharing his experience of looking to serve overseas, sometimes in really desperate situations, and share the gospel. And he recounts how actually uh, much of the book is him recounting how he then traveled the world and spoke to Christians who are persecuted or in a country where persecution is likely for um, for practicing one's faith in Jesus. And he's, there's so many just amazing stories of, of faith in Jesus and what that means in China and what that means in the Muslim world, what that means in Somalia or, or elsewhere. And um, on one occasion he visits uh, China and he speaks to a group of Christian leaders and he kind of poses them this question. He says, well, in my words... What can you actually do to really stick it uh, to the equivalent of the emperor? What can you do to really get, maybe not get your own back, how can you threaten the regime? How, do, how can you undermine 
this totalitarian, totalitarian regime that is anti-Jesus. Um, and they respond with this scenario. The security police regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. The police say, you have got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. Then the property owner will probably respond. Do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police will not know how, what to make of that answer. So they will say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers will respond. And then we will put you in prison, the police will threaten. By now the believers' response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency... The house church believers will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. Now, they're sharing a scenario. From, from my lips, it can sound trite. From theirs, it doesn't. To be a Christian leader, mature and trusted in China, there's a significant likelihood that you've been in prison for three years for your faith and planted churches there. Um, perhaps. So they know what they're talking about. This is what that kind of book is outlining. But you see that word that kind of crops up and up again. We will be free to dot, 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 dot. You're not free. Surely the police are going to bang on your door. They're going to threaten your meetings. They're going to throw you into prison. You're going to lose your house. You're going to kind of be destitute. You're going to have kind of no prospects really. And you might even lose your life. But they've received good news. And so they're they're actually savouring something of their freedom in Jesus. It's provoking stuff, but it goes to show the gospel isn't magic wand territory. All my problems will disappear. Uh, Jesus will join my story and, and make my story okay. It's no, we get to join and be a part of his story and what he is doing um, on the earth. So that's really the, the big idea. That's Mark's bold outline in just a sentence. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if you are not a Christian, or you would not at this point call yourself a Christian, you're not even sure what one of those is, this is good news for you. Good news that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and Mark here is inviting you to follow in the footsteps of other people back then who were called, who were invited to follow Jesus and they went with him on a journey of discovery, working out for themselves who is he and what is his kingdom actually like. It's, it's boldly put at the outset here, Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God. This is a bold passage. As we go on, the disciples take a long time, they take a little bit of time to actually work it out. They didn't kind of believe or understand straight away. And we're invited onto the same journey of discovery with them. For many of us who would call ourselves Christians, who understand a lot of what that might mean, this still presents us with a sobering but encouraging challenge. Am I still seeing who Jesus really is? Is this good news continuing to shape my life? Am I living a life of faith in his kingdom? Or have my expectations become that Jesus comes and joins me in my kingdom? Here's what's going on in my kingdom. Jesus needs to come and join me. Uh, make my kingdom as successful as possible. And, uh, and I will then, I'll be, I'll, I'll be following him, of course. But the focus is on me and my kingdom. Now the focus here is on Jesus and on Jesus' kingdom and what it means to be a part of it. So, we've met John. Let's meet the next character in this kind of prologue to the book. We meet John the Baptist. It says, uh, Mark kind of launches straight in. And he could have kind of gone to Jesus' birth. He could have spoken about Mary and Joseph and the stable. Although actually the other gospel writers don't mention the stable. Um, he, could have, uh, he could have gone with the, the detail that other gospel writers give us. But he, he launches into when this good news went public. When this good news kind of got shared widely. It says, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And those verses there are actually (coughs) a blend of a few scriptures, most notably, and I'll mention these, but we may not look at them now, Isaiah 40 and verse 3, and also Malachi 3 verse 1. Uh, Mark takes the liberty of kind of blending them together and saying it is written in Isaiah uh, the prophet. He's making the point that the Old Testament in a variety of places um, said that there would be a messenger, there'd be a voice, there'd be a herald or a forerunner, someone who God would send ahead to prepare the way. And who's he actually preparing the way for? He's Those Old Testament scriptures are making the point clear. There's a forerunner, a herald, who is preparing the way for God himself to come. God himself is coming, but there's a messenger sent ahead to to prepare. So Mark begins with this time of, of preparation, this good news that was heralded by John the Baptist. A relative of Jesus, we work out from other gospel accounts. But there's a big Surprise, as we meet John the Baptist, or one of the surprises at least, is this. This new beginning, this good news, started in the desert, or in the wilderness. That's what we're told by those scriptures. That's what we're told then when John came baptizing in the desert region. The desert is an uncomfortable place. This is land that is not farmed, it's not lived in, it's not an easy place to live. John's clothing and his diet give us a hint of that as well. 
But to Hebrews, the wilderness was thought to be a gloomy place of terror, place of evil spirits, a place of dangerous beasts, which we see reference to wild animals right at the end in verse uh, 13. This was not a comfortable place to be, a place which would not... in. Uh, have a comfortable experience. There are people who had been to the desert in Israel's history and it was not comfortable. Elijah came to the end of himself, fled from Jezebel and went to the desert, went to the wilderness, said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I can't go on, he's saying. There's no, there's no hope now. I'm the only one. That was Elijah's experience. But of course, a whole of God's people had some uncomfortable memories of wilderness, of desert. As a reminder of their failures, God wonderfully rescued his people from Egypt. We see in Exodus uh, 4, and we will turn to Exodus 4 briefly, um, God sent Moses and he wanted to, to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 4, uh, verse 22, God says to Moses, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I'll kill your firstborn son. Let my son go. Ultimately, eventually, Pharaoh would, and they would make their escape. They would miraculously cross through the Red Sea. They would head into the desert. They would go to Mount Sinai. Moses would go to the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. What did the people do during that time? They've just been rescued by their God. Their God has come and said, you're my son. You're my special kind of chosen people. I've got plans to, to, to be with you, to make you my people, and for you to be a blessing to the whole world. Just wait here. I need to speak with Moses. They wait. They get bored. They get impatient. They say to Aaron, would you make us another god? And we can worship that one. And their experience through the desert is a time of grumbling and complaining, ultimately then of unbelief. Moses leads them right up to the kind of the the, the boundary of the, the promised land, the land that God's going to give them. They could, they're about to go in, some spies get sent ahead to spy out the land. This is a wonderful time. We spent all this time in the desert, but now we're going into the land. But the people stumble over their own unbelief. They still don't believe that God is good. They still don't really believe that God is is with them and will lead them and will guide them and will give them victory. So they shrink back. They don't believe in him. And they have another 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness. So remarkable then that when John the Baptist begins his ministry, he doesn't go to the city. He doesn't go to where the people are. He's in the desert and the people are coming to him. And it's an un, a place of uncomfortable experience and memories for God's people. But massive numbers of people are gathering. So back to Mark uh, chapter 1 verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. They've been hearing this good news. 
They've been hearing that, that, that a prophet has come. We've not had one of those for 400 years. This is a good time. Let's go out. Let's hear his message. And the good news is this. Repent. Change your ways. People could have thought that a revolution was taking place, that people were, were going out and this huge army would, would, would kind of take up arms and, uh, and, and John would, would lead them and kind of overthrow the rulers of the day, perhaps. That's what it could have looked like as so many people went out to the desert. But it's not a revolution in that sense. It's a revolution of the heart. It's like lots of people realizing all at once under John's ministry, I need to turn back to God. I need to change my ways. I need to have a revolution of my attitudes and my values. And they were doing a remarkable thing to demonstrate that attitude of repentance. They were getting baptized. John was baptizing them in water. What did that actually mean for a Jew? It meant something quite remarkable because Jews would be used to kind of ceremonial washing that they would do now and again on a semi-frequent basis. But a one-off baptism... That was something that Gentiles did. That was something that people did who weren't born Jewish. But they recognized Israel's God. And they wanted to follow Israel's God. So they wanted to kind of come into Israel. They wanted to come into Israel's, the the son of God, Israel. And so they got baptized into Israel, as it were. And then they'd become uh, one of God's people. That's what a heathen would do. That's what the Gentiles had to do. Here are the Jews, here are the people of God. Here's Israel coming out to the countryside saying, no, it's us. We need to repent. The fact that we are descended from Abraham doesn't make us right. It doesn't make us clean. It doesn't make us pleasing in God's sight. We, we need to change. There's this massive move of God. A huge impact was had in uh, in. John's ministry, an uncomfortable message, in other words. Good news, come and fall on your knees. Good news, come and repent. Good news, come and be baptized. But this is kind of time of preparation. This is a time of new beginning. Perhaps you can identify with being in the desert, in the wilderness, at the end of yourself. There are loads of things in the world that you would like to change But the biggest issue is on the inside. I need to get right with God. An uncomfortable place to be when we have to contemplate afresh our own failures, our own weakness, our own unbelief, our own sin. But we have a God who meets us in the desert. Not kind of plowing on through improve yourself make it to the other side and then i will reveal myself to you this is the god who comes to people in the desert comes to people in the wilderness and this is where god starts something new this is the beginning of good news in the desert the beginning of good news in the wilderness the beginning of the good news when we've reached a low point I am not impressed with myself right now, and I could tell you why. Oh, there's no good news then, is there? There's no way forward. I've, I've reached the end, I've reached the bottom, I've reached my limits, I've had enough, said Elijah. This is good news to people 
who've had enough. This is good news to people who can't find strength in themselves. They've reached the end. This is a good place to be, oddly enough. There we have some time with Mark. We've seen some time with John the Baptist in the wilderness. What happened next? Well, John's ministry was just the start. He was pointing to someone else. And he said that himself in verses 7 and 8. In addition to his message of repentance and baptism, he said this, After me will come one more powerful than I. And as if to really drive the point home about how much more powerful, how much greater, how much more significant the one to come will be, he says this, The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. In other words, in comparison to the one who is to come, I am lower than the least domestic slave who would be expected to untie the sandal of their master. I'm lower than that, John's saying. Perhaps because this massive amount of people have come out, this, this kind of good news, this revolution has started, and John's saying, no, it's not me. You need to see that my role is to point to someone else, someone much more powerful than I. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I get you a bit wet. He's going to do something far more powerful by the Holy Spirit. Now, who would you picture at that point? Who do you think this one more powerful than John would be when the whole Judean countryside and Jerusalem have gone to meet with, with John, have kind of sat under his teaching and kind of got baptized, many of them in any case? Who would you then picture in your mind if you were sat among them, hearing him at that time? One more powerful is coming. Well, this is going to be absolutely remarkable. All-conquering, mighty ruler, perhaps considering the day, on horseback or chariot, every inch a majestic statesman, dazzling and brilliant, ready to lead a global revolution and stick it to the Romans. Now, I don't know. Perhaps that's what people were thinking. Perhaps that's what you may have thought if you had been there and a part of it. But what is clear is this. God's ways of dealing with crises are different from the world's. Our expectation of good news in the desert could be very different from what unfolded back then. Good news has an altogether different feel in God's kingdom. And so there again is this massive surprise. There's the surprise that this good news is happening in the desert. There's then this surprise that at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why is that surprising? Well, Jesus, at this point, appears every inch the ordinary guy from a northern ordinary town with a very ordinary appearance, a very ordinary, even looked down upon accent, with an ordinary name. There were loads of people called Jesus or something similar in the time. And perhaps he also experienced an ordinary baptism. Well, it was extraordinary, surely. We've, we, we just read earlier on 
that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. Well, that's clearly massively significant. The implications of which, again, we'll, we'll see. And there'll be other points in the book where there are similar kind of dramatic moments that other people witness. But at this point it says, Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The significance of the moment was not lost on Jesus. Perhaps the significance of the moment was not lost on John. But to the big crowd watching, they could have missed what looked like a very ordinary moment. There were loads of people getting baptized. But this is heaven's man. This is good news. This is Jesus, the ordinary guy. No, he is the Christ, the Son of God. Identifying himself with us. God himself coming to us and putting himself in our shoes. Walking in our place. An amazing experience of the Spirit descending on him, empowering him. The Father speaking. You are my Son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is the chosen one. The one anointed to save us. But then comes another surprise. Suddenly Jesus is sent into the desert. He doesn't at this point begin and go straight to Jerusalem and begin a massive uh, ministry with thousands gathering to him. He goes to the desert. He goes there and he's tested and tempted for 40 days. Why is that significant? Well, Other gospel accounts will shed more light on the specific temptations that Jesus experienced. But for Mark, it's enough to say he went there, and he went there for 40 days. He went to the gloomy place. He went to the place where Israel failed. He went to the place where we failed. He went to the wilderness. He experienced a real testing, but he would overcome This is the one who would succeed in every area of our weakness. He would trust God where we doubted. He would follow God where we went astray. He would rely on God where we rely on ourselves. Believing God where we didn't. And resisting the devil where we succumbed. God walked in our shoes. Not, well, of course, he was God. He would, he would do that. It was a breeze. No, it was a real test. But he was walking in our shoes and he overcame. Israel, the son of God, stumbled and fell. Now we see Jesus, the son of God, coming and succeeding where no one else could. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in fact, it's just the beginning of it. Mark's gospel continues at a similar kind of breakneck speed. Like I've said, Luke and Matthew tell us more detail, especially about Jesus' early years and the details of what he experienced in the wilderness. But Mark... True to his form, he wants to cut right to the chase and show this. Jesus is the good news. Mark is showing us his hand. He's making this brief but bold introduction. And we're going to follow it through 
in the whole book. We're going to see who Jesus is. We're going to see the disciples as they're working it out for themselves. We're going to see what God's kingdom is like that Jesus brings in, which is why actually on an ordinary Sunday amongst an ordinary group of people in Sheffield, we can pray in the name of Jesus and have people then come and share story of actually something changed. Why did something change? Because we prayed in the name of Jesus. Who is Jesus? In so many ways, we, we kind of want to declare, of course, his majesty and his excellence and his power. And when stuff really goes chaotic in the world or in our own life, we want to quickly be able to point to this majestic, powerful, awesome God. Of course he is that. But sometimes we have to appreciate that the good news can sometimes appear quite ordinary in the midst of international crises or personal ones. Now, it's important that you meet Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah, he might appear ordinary, but it's important that we see who he really is, what he came to do, and how wonderful the good news is that is all about Jesus. Let's pray and let's worship God together.